Hello and welcome to the Book of India Conversations, a podcast series on the Constitution of India and how it fares today. I am your host, Keshav Padmanabhan. J.B. Kripalini, President of the All India National Congress, famously declared at the Meerut session in 1946 that the Constitution of India to be drafted will be a democratic constitution and will be federal in character. Dr. B.R. Ambedkar described the draft constitution as federal, even though the word itself found no mention in the preamble of the constitution. Rather, the distribution of powers between the union and states portrayed a constitution grappling with the idea of how to create a federal system of government while maintaining the centralization of power with the union government. The outcome of these debates in the words of Dr. B.R. Ambedkar is as follows. The draft constitution can be both unitary as well as federal according to the requirements of time and circumstances. In normal times, it is framed to work as a federal system, but in times of war, it is so designed as to make it work as though it was a unitary system. Further, Dr. Ambedkar also defined in their view what describes a federal constitution. A federal constitution is marked by the existence of a central polity and subsidiary polities side by side, and by each being sovereign in the field assigned to it. In other words, federation means the establishment of a dual polity. Yet, since the Constitution of India came into force, this idea of a dual polity has continuously been tested and challenged, from the role of a governor in states, or even as recently as the farm bills, which brought into question the distribution of legislative powers between the union and states as envisaged in the seventh schedule of the constitution. To further discuss this, Dr. Louis Stillen, director and professor in politics at the King's India Institute at the King's College London, whose research interests span federalism, democracy, and territorial politics in India, and Ritrika Sharma, team lead and senior resident fellow with the Center for Legal Policy will be joining us today. Welcome to this episode of the podcast. Thanks a lot, Keisha. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So my first question, Ratwika, for the benefit of setting the context for today's discussion, can you lay out to us the constitutional history of federalism in India? And how did we arrive at the current federal structure? Of course, definitely, Keshav. Thanks a lot for that question. In fact, you've made my job easier by doing some bit of context setting yourself. Um, but I think the one point that I, I, I do have to mention here is that most of the uh, most of the decisions that were taken at the constituent assembly were uh, the, the decision makers were cognizant of the fact that we were operating within the background of uh, of, a, of a rather bloody and communally driven partition um, and there was a foundational threat posed by states the states provinces as they were then called which was sort of exhibiting quote unquote something called fissiparous tendencies and these circumstances propelled the constituent assembly to consciously design and adopt a centralized federal model in which residuary powers lay with the union government they were supposed to lie with the union government and not with the provinces so that 
decisive action could be taken to protect national integrity, which, which was a compelling concern back then. Um, and in this particular sense, the constitution continued the broad framework of the Government of India Acts, both of 1919 and 1935, which preceded the constitution. Uh, so while it brought in models of limited self-governance at the provincial level, uh, the constitution still retained the hugely centralizing features of pre-colonial legislation. And in fact, reflecting this, the word federalism does not appear in the constitution, the text of the constitution. Um, and Keshav, you already mentioned Dr. Ambedkar. He highlighted how India's constitution differed from the tight mold of other federal systems and offered the flexibility to be both unitary as well as federal according to the times, according to the requirements of time and circumstances. The underlying intent here was to have adequate division of power, but enable India to tide over social, political and economic crises at the time through a stable national government. In fact, that's the sort of prevailing understanding that's, that's, uh, that we know of even today. So the outcome was a constitution that allowed for a strong center while also al allowing for interdependence and cooperation from states. And this, this sort of informs our, our understanding of how many of the decisions that were taken during the, during the framing of the constitution were arrived at. Um, I think most people know currently that local governments have been uh, in existence since forever. But as we know, they weren't constitution recognized back then when the constitution was being adopted uh, in 1949 and came into force in 1950. And again, a lot of this uh, happened because the thinking of the constitution makers was informed by the fact that we needed a stable national government. Um, as it so happens, yes, federalism has definitely deepened in India. There's been reorganization, reorganization of states on linguistic lines. Um, there's been provisions introducing special concessions to certain states to address local political demands. We now have devolved uh, power to local governments. Uh, but the evolution of federalism in India has not been strictly linear. Uh, in fact, simultaneously, there have been, uh, besides growing powers of states, there have also been periods of centralizing governance. The emergency was such a period. Um, the handling of COVID in the beginning in March 2020 was again one of those instances. Um, and uh, this, this is where the, the, uh, this is the sort of context that Indian federalism was developing from. And this is where we are currently. And several challenges relating to the federal character of the constitution have surfaced and resurfaced over the years. And of course, we could talk about them in greater detail, but those are my two cents on generally the context for Indian federalism and where we are currently. So, Dr. Tillon, as I had mentioned earlier, some of these particular issues in the working of Indian federalism seems timeless, right? One such is the dynamics concerning the office of the governor. It was envisioned as an intergovernmental bridge. The position of the governor today has been questioned as one that is exercising their powers to subvert federalism. Moreover, as Rituka mentioned, you know, while federalism has deepened, there's also been deepening of centralization. Is there sort of an amicable resolution of this issue, one which respects the overall federal scheme of the constitution? I mean, these are absolutely fascinating questions, and I, and I think you get right to the heart of the operational challenges, if you like, of, of um, really bringing the federal design as envisaged by um, the architects of the constitution into life. Um, Ridwika, I think you're, you're absolutely right to say that the, the, the design of Indian federalism shaped at its origins produced a, for the time, rather uniquely centralised um, and centralising 
version of federalism. But there was another feature um, to, to federal design, which was also um, a departure um, for, for the, you know, in, in the mid 20th century. And that was the extent of intergovernmental cooperation that constitutional design required and envisaged, in fact. Um, so while Ambedkar described uh, the, the nature of federalism as hinging on this dual polity um, in which both two levels of government had constitutionally enumerated um, responsibilities, um, the Indian constitution also had a rather extensive concurrent list of shared responsibilities and indeed all sorts of ways in which the central government was able, um, either on the bidding of the states uh, or um, in situations of emergency, to intervene in um, affairs that have been constitutionally allocated to the states. Um, so uh, scholars at the time uh, described India as, as really um, embodying the first um, example of a more cooperative model of federalism, um, one that really um, required uh, closer co cooperation between um, the union government and state governments, um, which, you know, I think even from the, the kind of the outset at some level complicates the notion that this is simply a dual polity. And of course, that gives rise to many of the tensions that we still see um, today, and, and the office of the governor is a very good example of that. Um, uh, you know, a, a, a constitutional position um, that was created in order to serve as a bridge between uh, the union government and state governments, but also one uh, that has acquired a good deal of authority um, in uh, ways that might not have originally been um, envisaged. Uh, and, you know, of course, we've seen that. Um, come into you know kind of sharp um, delineation in, in recent months and, and you know with the politics of defections that we see happening at the state level where the role of the governor um, has been crucially responsible or, or you know in in determining who um, is able to form a government um, when when you know these defections have taken place um, so uh, these dilemmas are, are in a way hardwired into the constitutional design that um, sought to enable more flexibility, if you like, um, than compared to some of the earlier um, types of federalism, especially um, the, the United States model, um, in which, uh, you know, historically, um, divisions of power between centre and states were um, more tightly circumscribed and of course in which residual authority lay with the states so in all sorts of ways the indian federal design was intended to be more flexible um, than, uh, than 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 some of the earlier forms of federalism um Kishap, if i could just chip in on the governor issue dr dylan if it's fine um mm. Yeah, so uh, I, think, I think what's happened with the office of the governor is, um, and I for one do believe that the office of the governor at a fundamental level requires a relook. And when I say the office of the governor requires a relook, I think we should go back to the drawing board talking about how governors are appointed, how they're removed, what is the what is the sort of uh, breadth of the functions that we expect governors to, to be performing. Because the constitution contemplated a governor's office, which is supposed to have strong links to the center, at the same time exercising some degree of choice in critical matters. Instead of serving as that intergovernmental bridge, I think at this point, and as you rightly pointed out, Dr. Tillin, 
Far too often, we see governors seem to be exercising that choice to subvert federalism and destabilize state politics. Uh, in fact, one of one of the sort of um, governors, I think, to, look, to a certain point, were weaponizing uh, uh, the the provision for uh, president's rule in states. Till, till the till the sort of landmark judgment in Union of India in mm. the SFOMI case happened, governors are frequently weaponizing that provision for for getting a president's rule imposed in a particular state. Um, and it's only after, as one of my colleagues, uh, Doctor, uh, as one of my colleagues, Alok Prasanna Kumar, has also pointed out, Bombay perhaps is that one judgment which has had a tangible inf- uh, impact on federalism. Because after Bombay said that president's rule can't be imposed at at person's whim, and so certain conditions had to be fulfilled, um, it's only after that that the number of uh, proclamations of emergency in states has 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 come down, has significantly come down. But on the issue of governors, um, I can't stop myself from talking about uh, what what the Supreme Court has said about the governor's discretionary power uh, with respect to summoning of the session of a state legislative assembly, removal of the speaker, and proceedings of disqualification on the 10th schedule. And there's this judgment uh, from 2016, which uh, Nabam Rebia versus Deputy Speaker, Dr. Tillan and Keshav, you might have read about this. This was from the Arunachal Pradesh Legislative Assembly. And um, the scope of the governor's discretionary power with respect to functioning of the state legislature came into question. And then the Supreme Court categorically said that the governor does not enjoy broad discretionary power and is always subject to constitutional standards. The governor is expected to come arrive at decisions in consultation with Council of Ministers. Um, the, the breadth of the discretionary powers is not unlimited. Um, the Discretionary power definitely does not extend to um, uh, the summoning of the house or determining its legislative assembly or determining its legislative agenda without any consultation. So courts, I think, have become cognizant of this fact that uh, the governor, yes, is is an intergovernmental bridge, but it cannot be sitting um, uh, sitting separately or sitting above an elected government, elected state government. Uh, in fact, even in the, in the most um, in recent cases, I think from May this year, the uh, where the Supreme Court ordered the release of one of the convicts in Rajiv Gandhi's assassination, A.G. Parari Vadan, um, the the state governor over there did not refer the cabinet's recommendation for Parari Vadan's release. In fact, he he referred it to the president, which 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 definitely is outside of the constitutional scheme. So the Supreme Court again came down heavily on the governor and said that. Clearly, this this referring the matter to the president by the governor, again, is sort of a backhanded attempt by the governor to completely sidestep an elected government. So the court, I think, is sort of, I mean, I don't want to use the words reigning in, but this is precisely, I think, what has happened um, uh, with respect to this court's approach to the office of the governor. But I think that only solves one part of the problem. Um, I definitely feel some, some more research, some more deliberation should go into how governors are appointed. Perhaps now is a good time to relook. It's been 75 years and we've seen far too many instances of the governor's office uh, being used for not so noble purposes. So yes, I, I do think, yes, political maneuvering is what it's being used for, but I don't think we need to abolish the office. Perhaps reforming the office is a better way to go about it. Mm. Could I ask you, um, Ridwika, what kinds of ideas you might posit for for how to reform the office of the governor? I mean, it seems to me that, of course, at the moment, the office of the governor has become so contentious because we see um, such intense partisan conflict uh, between the centre and the states, um, which is, you know, bringing the the, the office of the governor into kind of... uh, it, it, um, it, it, it kind of politicizes the role of the governor. 
um, as an agent of centre state relations or centre state tensions. I mean, what, one you know radical reform idea that that has occurred to me is you know why why do we not have at the state level something that is akin to the mechanism by which the president is elected? So of course, you know, at one level the governor is the analogue to the president at, at, at state level. Um, so you know, why not have a, a method of indirect election um, among MLAs and representatives of, of local governments at the state level? completely change the model by which the governor is is both selected and held to account. That actually is, uh, is, is quite radical, in fact, now, to even now that you mentioned <laughs> it. Um, and, and, and now I'm thinking of many things with regard to the Office of the Governor, now that you mentioned it. I'm going to think about this for really long. But yes, in fact, I was going to talk about um, the appointment system, which... Um, because of practical concerns or whatever, is currently largely in the hands of the state, I'm sorry, the central government. Mm. Um, and um, so, I mean, for all we, I mean, we, we can go, we can say a lot of things about, oh, the governor is still supposed to be the intergovernmental bridge. We know exactly that that's not happening. The governor is sort of uh, what the central government is installing in a state to get their way out. So maybe um, we, we could, I can't think of a, as radical an approach as you just suggested, but maybe an intermediate approach where we have perhaps a panel of a larger a larger panel of people that the that the president could could select the governor from, um, uh, so that I mean there is there is some semblance of um, some semblance of impartiality and some semblance of fair representation where where it's not just about installing people that the central government wants in states. Um, as as they sort of um, as something that they could they could run the state governments with. So maybe a wider panel to choose from and more transparency about who this panel is is, is it consists of. Mm. Um, uh, also have some sort of consultation with the. I mean, of course, I'm sure there is there is there is consultation with state government about who is the government the governor that's going to get installed in a particular state. But um, but but a mechanism that caters to federal concerns more deeply and more effectively instead of just having ceremonial consultation with state governments. Um, I don't want to sound too prescriptive about how federal concerns can be addressed. Uh, but yes, having wider representation in terms of the candidate that you choose from and um, have, have, uh, have, have more, some, some sort of more federal concerns being counted in when appointing a governor. I mean, these are the two broad things that currently come to my mind. I, mm -hmm. Maybe we could also think about how governors are removed uh, and think more radically about that, uh, but yes, I think appointments is the one is the one system that currently needs to definitely be reformed. Right, and I mean, thank you both for this. And I, I feel like I just need to sort of key in here from what Dr. Tillen said about how the Constitution created sort of a system of cooperative federalism, but the sort of intergovernmental bridge constitutionally that of the office of the governor sort of has seen numerous contentious issues that have arisen. Uh, this sort of leads, to, leads me to my second question, uh, sort of laying it within this context of cooperative federalism. Dr. Tillon, in your work, you have pointed out how since the dissolution of the planning commission, there is no sort of active forum for center state dialogue at a policy planning level. And this sort of keys in also with the larger question of the role of the governor and, you know, how does cooperative federalism function, right? The interstate mm. council, which also sort of exists, has been defunct. And uh, the Niti Aayog, which sort of 
with a place the planning commission was never meant to be an exact substitution for the planning commission so are we faced with this need for the defined institutional architecture for negotiating center state relations uh, to sort of ensure this larger cooperative federalism structure functions uh, in a more effective manner mm. yeah and I, and i should you know this is a, an argument that that my colleague and, and co sometime co-author yamini aya has repeatedly made really that, that, that the dismantling of the planning commission has has left um, an institutional vacuum or has exacerbated the sense that there is an institutional vacuum um, in, in the, the intergovernmental space, especially given that the Interstate Council hasn't functioned quite as it was envisaged by the, the Sarkaria Commission. Um, and, and I think, um, as you say, the, the Niti Aayog was never intended to replace the functions of the Planning Commission. So what we've seen has you know, it is a process whereby the, the, the budget setting, budget negotiation functions of the Planning Commission have passed to the Ministry of Finance, um, which has removed from the states a space in which to negotiate um, fiscal questions with, with the centre. Um, the NITI-IO, of course, has a mandate to strengthen what it describes as, as India's cooperative, the model of cooperative federalism, but it doesn't have an institutional architecture um, through, through which to do that. So, you know, we've seen it convene a number of committees to discuss questions of centre-state relations, um, but those have not been well institutionalised and have often not seen very full participation across, you know, among all states. Um, and, and I do think that um, the, the need really to revisit spaces for intergovernmental dialogue is, is absolutely crucial, um, even as it is quite hard to imagine in such a polarised um, political climate. Um, and I think, you know, a kind of a reason for that is that so many, and you, you, you alluded to this in your opening remarks, but so many of the emergent policy issues that are, the, you know, the most pressing issues of our time, whether that is the question of, of how a federal government responds to a pandemic um, or how it responds to questions of climate change, um, require a, a, an element of flexibility um, in deciding uh, questions of, of, you know, where policy authority ought to lie. Um, and, and these are very, you know, these are always complicated questions in, 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 in multi-level um, political systems. You know, they, they raise um, questions around, um, you know, scales of, you know, the scale of government, you know, which most effective policy outcomes can be achieved. They raise questions of community, um, and of belonging, um, which of course, you know, define the sense of political community and, and you know, what constitutes a, re a region within a federal system. Um, but they also um, kind of involve questions of democracy, you know, which kind of political community within a federal system ought to have the um, policy autonomy to, to decide questions that are important for that community. And um, if, if you think of, you know, the kind of complex policy questions that are involved um, in, in, in health, um, these very often don't, you know, don't have kind of um, one simple answer. So the, the way that you might want um, authority to be um, allocated during a pandemic, when you have a, a, a question of contagion, um, a communicable disease that, that doesn't respect political boundaries and therefore requires some degree of central coordination in order to um, prevent or to, to slow the spread of an infectious disease, 
the question of you know that 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 kind of um, decision might look quite different if you're talking about a, a non-communicable disease or a question of ethics um, in the health field. Um, you know, we've just seen the Supreme Court, for instance, adjudicate, adjudicate on questions of abortion rights um, this week, um, and those are moral ethical questions. And um, you know, whether those are best determined at the national level or by smaller communities where local communities might want to express their preferences. Those are kinds of shifting moral, moral and ethical questions that really require um, proper dialogue between um, levels of government in order to determine where policy authority should lie. Now, I've got quite deep there into questions of ethics, but really to try and illustrate that the complexity of um, the policy questions that um, India and, of course, other um, multi big multi-level um, governments confront um, really require um, architectures of intergovernmental del deliberation in order to resolve these questions of, you know, who, who, who and how, um, you know, policy, policy responses should, should be enacted. So all of that to say, um, you know, I think one gets tired often of saying, oh, you know, the interstate council um, is is dysfunctional, um, but, you know, we need an intergovernmental space in order to kind of discuss these questions. But they are, you know, kind of, of absolutely critical importance. And um, just because we're on the question of um, intergovernmental coordination, um, I can't help but think about this uh, brief study that we did, Dr. Tillon, last year. Me and my colleagues at FITI, we wrote a report, we wrote, we wrote a research report on um, Article 282 of the Constitution. Um, and why I talk about this is because, and, and I'll just, first of all, I think I should lead with saying what Article 282 does uh, for the benefit of the listeners also. So Article 282 of the Constitution um, is a falls under the chapter that talks about financial relations between the center and the, between the union and the states. And this particular provision, Article 282, enables the union as well as the states to make discretionary grants even beyond their respective legislative competences for any mm. public purpose. Um, oh, I'm sort of drawing air quotes around public purpose as I speak, because public purpose sort of determines what sort of grants can be made by the union or the state beyond their respective legislative competences. So in that, for instance, we know that public health falls under the legislative and administrative competence of state governments, but because of Article 282, the union government is empowered uh, to make grants or, or, or to make discretionary transfers to state governments for purposes that concern health. So, for instance, the National Health Mission, the NHM, which is sort of the flagship national public health program in India, is a centrally sponsored scheme. And this report around Article 282 was largely about centrally sponsored schemes and how they may be one of those means by which um, the union government may be sort of dictating terms to the state governments about how they should be, what policy spending they should be prioritizing one thing over the other, perhaps. And um, for, for the longest time, these centrally sponsored schemes were being uh, effectuated through the planning commission. Or when the planning commission was done away with, this is happening through nodal ministries. But yes, uh, to my mind, also maybe a better intergovernmental cooperation could lead to better structured centrally sponsored schemes. At no point in our research did we come to the conclusion that centrally sponsored schemes in and of themselves may not be useful. But yes, better coordination between the center and the state about what sort of centrally sponsored schemes would be most beneficial to a state. You can't have a one-size-fits-all fits approach. You can't have the same, same centrally sponsored scheme from, for UP and for Kerala. 
Of course, there are going to be several additional requirements that 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 go best into each of these centrally sponsored schemes. But the more I think about it, yes, that institutional vacuum may be a good place for us to be discussing what sort of scheme fits um, fits a particular state. So, mm-hmm. so just I'll, I'll I'll just sort of chip in and make a subtle plug for our research report as well. <laughs> but, <laughs> But the larger point here was to just talk about um, how Article 282, a provision that clearly perhaps was 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 made to address some sort of exigencies, possibly disaster management kind of exigencies. But yes, maybe better intergovernmental responses uh, can be plugged in uh, through, through some sort of institutional vacuums. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And it's, it's a really important, important report. Um, and, and centrally sponsored schemes are, you know, the kind of, are a really good example of the ways in which the union government has increasingly found ways to influence or set the agenda, even in, in subjects like health, as you say, which is constitutionally regarded as a state subject. Although I should say, even in health, there are all sorts of other articles in the constitution which also govern aspects of healthcare, which sit either in the union or the concurrent list. So it's a very complex constitutional space. And that also reflects the fact that you know the healthcare landscape is, is, is changing um, has, has changed so much as well since the constitution was designed. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, um, and then that's, of course, something that Niti Ayo attempted to do as well when it convened the committee to, to um, look at the future of centrally sponsored schemes um, after the, you know, the, the, the recommendations of the 14th Finance Commission and increased fiscal decentralization to the states. Of course, not that much has actually changed in practice um, since, since then. But I, I think, it, you know, I think, um, that's exactly why those those spaces for intergovernmental dialogue are you know are so important. Sure, sure. And because we are on the question uh, of both health as well as intergovernmental dialogue, Dr. Tillin, um, I I think I'll just I'll talk about for a few more minutes about the pandemic and then I have a question for you. So the pandemic obviously has tested the apparatus of the state in ways more than one. And one of the major tensions that we witnessed in India during the pandemic was between the need for a nationwide response versus the need for customizing to local conditions. So yes, we had an initial response that was driven um, through the central government under the provisions of the Disaster Management Act. And then we had some statewide responses through both the DM Act as well as state-specific Epidemic Diseases Act and whatever regulations municipal corporations had for, 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 for sort of um, dealing with, uh, with the spread of a communicable disease. Um, Dr. Tillon, in fact, uh, you and your team at King's India Institute had also put together the DCOV India website, mm. which, 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 to be honest, was a remarkable source of information for us also to analyze the response of Indian states during the pandemic. Um, but considering that this, I mean, we, um, this, this, this pandemic definitely was, was caught us, sort of caught us unaware. I, I think at this point I can, I can safely say that. Um, how do you think about governments reconciling the necessities of the response to a pandemic-like emergency with the federal scheme of India's constitution? Because there, there are several, there are several sympathizers of um, the first nationwide lockdown as well, because people said that nobody really knew what we were supposed to do. But how do you approach this question of reconciling the necessities of the pandemic with generally the federal scheme of the constitution? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the question of our, our time, really, isn't it? Um, and I often, you know, think that, that what happened in India was really a, a kind of play in, in two acts, um, because you had... You know, in the in the first the, the first act, um, 
a, a radically centralized response of a kind that was, you know, that 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 really stood out in comparison to other um, fed, federal systems with the, you know, an overnight national lockdown and and all of the um, challenges that then ensued for for, for migrant labour and so on returning returning to their home states. Um, but then in the second act, um, uh, a very uncoordinated. Uh, response initially um, to to um, questions of, of vaccine procurement, of oxygen distribution, and so on during during the second wave, um, when arguably there was there was there was, and as the the you know ultimately following the Supreme Court's intervention, that you know there, there really was a kind of need for more central coordination. It was very difficult for for state governments to um, procure vaccines. Um, uh, independently um, of, of central coordination. Um, so, um, you know, India kind of experimented with two quite radically different approaches to um, how to manage a pandemic during, um, in, in, a, in a federal setting. Um, and, yeah, <laughs> probably you know, the, the kind of, the, the answer might lie somewhere in, in, in the middle, um, which, you know, which is that there are, that, you know, that there were elements of, of, of the pandemic response that, um, that that that, you know, that did appear to you know require um, central coordination. Um, there were other other elements that obviously um, required a much more localized response um, that was um, attuned to local needs in a particular state or or even within municipal or local government areas with, within states. Um, and of course, you know that that reflects. Um, differences in, in, in population density, in, um, in, in the structure of the workforce. Um, you, you mentioned our, our DCOV India um, project, which was really an attempt to try and trace how at the state level we saw different policy, social policy responses um, emerging as states um, sought to strengthen their own social safety nets um, to the extent they could to um, enable or to, to, to support people in, in the you know, it, during the period of the, of the most intense lockdowns, when when economic activity and, and the ability to work were you know were so um, radically curtailed um, overnight, um, and and the you know the dynamics were very different state to state because um, you know the dif different different um, different extent to which you had a, an aging population. Um, uh, engaged in work on um, Narega work sites, for instance, um, was the case in, in Kerala. So even those kinds of work were, um, you know, were, were restricted in some states and not in others. So the need for states to be able to um, define their own um, policy mix to, to to respond was also very in, important. Um, so then there are all sorts of lessons from the, from the pandemic. Again, it comes back also to questions of intergovernmental coordination and collaboration. Um, the most dysfunctional outcomes really occur when you have states and central government and states competing with each other um, or acting without the effective transmission of information between, um, between levels of government. Um, so, you know, just coming back <laughs> again to that question of, of, an, of you know, of, of um, the spaces for, for intergovernmental relations. Um, yeah, uh, but I don't know, does that, does that kind of, um, I mean, are there other dimensions of, of um, pandemic federalism that, that strike you as being, having been important um, in retrospect? 
I think I think just one thing that that sort of struck um, that that I think stuck with a lot of us was just um, and and again this keeps going back to the question of intergovernmental cooperation was the bit on um, um, I don't want to call it that but yeah vaccine politics maybe and who's mm. going to vaccines um, whether whether um, well for starters yes it's going to be the central government which is tasked with securing uh, vaccines for for the entire population but then there was this flip flop about whether state governments should themselves be possibly contacting vendors themselves and I'm, i don't want to go into a lot of depth because i might quote some facts incorrectly but yes there was one other dimension of the pandemic which sort of struck out and again um, i know we keep going back to this dr tillen every now and then but yes again we co- oh, this is the, the entire issue then hinges upon better center state coordination um, and i think yes two years hence we have the benefit of hindsight um but but yes when 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 all of this was practically unfolding in front of all of us the 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 at at one point i i can fully imagine and i also speak from experience having been physically been here uh, the lack of coordination really was was both palpable uh, painfully palpable if i may say so mm. <laughs> but yes again this this sort of ties back to the point on um better coordination particularly um in, in times like these um and i think in 2020 we could have still called this unprecedented yes it was unprecedented we were all stuck by something that nobody knew um came out of nowhere but i think in 2021 a better coordinated response was both um merited uh, and i think the better coordinated response could have happened mm. uh because we were one year into the pandemic we knew what was happening um and uh, but yeah again just 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 uh, this is this is pretty much what that, that that sort of comes to me at this point yeah and i mean i i thank you both for that because when when we look at the pandemic and sort of the response to it i mean i think we the only way we responded to the pandemic in the beginning was through the national disaster management act which is an act under the nodal agency of the ministry of home affairs right so it wasn't even sort of a response in terms of a health emergency but rather a disaster emergency that required the home ministry to step in so i mean this this put in a, a very different sort of way that sort of the government had its tools to sort of respond to the covid pandemic which sort of brings me to a, a sort of slightly different question and in sort of a different flavor but also i think which is part of this broader question of sort of center state relations right and this i think is a also a very important political question which is uh you know that of delimitation you know mm. um, we're only about 5 years away or well not even 5 4 years away i think in 2026 when the electoral constitute tuencies of the lok sabha will have to be uh, will go through the delimitation process by the uh, election commission of india and this sort of will have significant consequences for the indian democracy as well as representation of states interests in parliament given that till date our constituencies are sort of delimited in terms of population right and given the sort of uneven change of democracy between states delimitation carried out entirely in terms of population would not be adequately represented in that case uh, dr tilden uh, how do you think policy makers should approach the exercise of delimitation what would be sort of a good starting point you know uh, in this exercise to maintain mm-hmm. a cooperative federal structure uh, especially in the absence of all these other tools we've discussed today mm-hmm. yeah, it has a really uh, really interesting um 
difficult question um, that, I mean, you know, so at the moment, of course, the delimitation of constituencies has been frozen since ni 1970s. Um, so uh, the population data used to, to um, distribute parliamentary seats um, is based on the, the 1971 population data. Um, so I think it's you know obviously going to, to be likely that the government will seek to um, end that freeze um, in, in 2021. I just note for those who haven't you know followed this rather arcane um, uh, um, feature, um, this this was um, a, a compromise that was um, introduced during the emergency um, in order to try to disincentivize population growth among states. Um, and what it has meant has been that those states that reduced their rates of population growth since the 1970s have been slightly overrepresented in in the in Parliament since then, and those states that have seen faster rates of population growth um, have been slightly underrepresented. Um, and and I think we can't ignore the um, the the the, con the consequences of that. So it has meant that more populous northern states like uh, UP or Bihar um, are somewhat underrepresented under on the basis of their population in the Lok Sabha compared to um, some southern states. Um, and, you know, that, that also has implications, for instance, for the number of, um, of reserved seats. And um, there would probably be more reserved seats in the Lok Sabha for um, scheduled castes um, were that... Um, balance of rep representation to be adjusted in, along along population lines but um the the politics of simply updating um the delimitation on the basis of, of population of course is fiendishly complex um and it not only rep will will raise questions of the balance of representation of states in the Lok Sabha, but it also will probably touch on other other redistributive questions, um, which have already been ignited by the debates that preceded the 15th Finance Commission, which had as one of its terms of reference the need to update um, criteria for fiscal decentralisation based on 2021 uh, census data, um, which at the time ignited a debate um, about fiscal distribution among um, uh, states. Um, so, you know, I think these these questions of representation and um, economic redistribution within the federal system are and will be quite um, closely tied. And um, I think if not handled carefully, um, they could become um, very destabilizing um, for the federal compact um, in such that there is one um, in India. So um, they are going to, I think, require some deft um, thinking among policymakers um, about the, the principles of representation um, in, in Parliament. Um, I, I mean, I, I hesitate before making suggestions. I've already made a radical proposal for reform of the governor's office. Um, but I, I do wonder if uh, this is a moment at which um, one needs to look at um, the nature of representation, both in the Log Sabha, but also in the Rajya Sabha, um, and whether uh, whether this might offer a kind of a way of thinking about how to approach the question of delimitation. Of course, um, the Rajya Sabha, um, as most listeners 
in, in India will know, um, is also is kind of mirrors the, the structuring of, of the Lok Sabha. So unlike, for instance, a federal system like the United States or Brazil, where each state has an equal number of senators in the upper house and the Senate, um, in, in India, states are represented unevenly, asymmetrically, loosely based on, on, um, on their size in, in the Rajya Sabha. Um, and, you know, there have been, if I'm to think back, for instance, to the, the, um, the Punchi Commission on Centre-State Relations, in, in, in which reported in 2010, um, which recommended revisiting the principle of, of representation in the Rajya Sabha. Um, so I, I do wonder whether there is a way of counterbalancing, for instance, an update of, of delimitation in the Log Sabha um, by moving towards a somewhat more equal um, representation of states in the Rajya Sabha. I wouldn't suggest a completely equal representation of states because that means that very, very small states would, would have representation equal to very, very large states given the, you know, the, the great difference in size between a state like Tripura, for instance, on one hand and, and UP on the other. Um, but you could imagine a, a more federalizing reform in the upper house, which might counterbalance um, uh, and update the delimitation in the Logs Hubber. Um, but I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. That's, you know, that's me kind of thinking off, off the top of my head, really, about how you might creatively have a federal a federalizing response to this, um, this, this pending question of delimitation. Uh, in fact, Dr. Dillon, this, this question of delimitation is one um, that we've only recently started, um, and by we, I mean me and my uh, colleagues at Vidya, we've recently started work on this. And in fact, your comments and your remarks are actually, they, they provided us uh, some food for thought about how we can potentially start researching this question, because I think delimitation um, from, from a research perspective, as well as from uh, generally how people think about it, it's one of those things that people just want to keep putting off because this is, mm. this is rather, this is a rather, uh, this, this is a, perhaps the trickiest of all questions. So in fact, your thoughts, Dr. Dylan, have been rather helpful here. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> I'd be very interested to hear uh, and, and how, I mean, how, how, you take, how you take these questions forward. Yeah, I, I also would be really interested, given that I'm from a southern state, <laughs> and uh, it would be very interesting to see how my colleagues uh, look at this question of representation. Uh, saying that, I think... colleagues, many of whom are actually based out of states in north of India. I think, uh, Keshav, Keshav, we have a deeper conversation to have here. <laughs> I, I, I agree, I agree over lunch. Uh, hmm. That being said, I, I thank you both uh, for joining uh, me today to discuss this difficult question. But this brings us to the end of this episode of the Book of India Conversations. 